My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thora. Holy crap, it's here. This has taken me seven months of my life to complete, and I am super pleased how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching Expat Secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is a serial entrepreneur at the crossroads of finance, technology, and the legal fields. He is the founder of blockchain-based KYC onboarding software, KYC Chain, and most recently, he has founded the Self-Key Foundation to enable self-sovereign digital identity initiatives for unlocking the new human potential and radically enabling financial inclusion. And most notably, he is the founder of flagtheory.com. Please welcome to the show, Edmund John. Edmund, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's awesome to have you here. I'm really excited about today's conversation. Why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of explain to us how you got involved, not just in flag theory, but in this self-key. This is really interesting. I mean, growing up, I always really wanted to be a lawyer. Watched some television dramas, I think, at some point, and really was impressed by the legal profession, right? Fighting for the little guy in a court of law where it was very fair, really kind of, it hit on my core values. Where I went to university at Northeastern, you actually get to go and practice the profession which you'd like to someday do while you're still in school. And I got to work in a local court and I got to see lawyers on a daily basis interacting. And I remember the moment that I decided not to be a lawyer anymore, long story, but this public defender, someone who's not paid as a lawyer, got her client off and the client basically was looking at five to 10 years, was going to be away from her family, away from her kids, and walked out of the courtroom without so much as a thank you to her public defender. And I felt like at that point, really didn't want to be a lawyer anymore, despite having gone through a significant amount of legal training. After that, my next call up was in real estate sector. So I was selling real estate as a licensed broker in Massachusetts and sort of had not the best timing um, as I was doing that job because the housing market collapsed essentially in, in 2008 and there was a huge subprime mortgage issue 
And I really was interested in why that happened and read a lot about finance and, and, and collateralized debt obligations and CBOs and everything that had gone on in that time period and, and started to learn a lot more about finance. So that, that stuck with me and was a very formative time in my life. And, and from there, I went from being a property agent to being a company agent. So for some of the real estate investors, for some of the friends at university, for other people, I'd been setting up legal entities because I knew how to do legal work. And it was a very natural transition to start being a property agent to a company agent. So I, I started doing that and, and learned about this really interesting topic called KYC. It was a compliance term, which means know your customer. And it's something that I was required to do for all of the clients who were setting up companies. And then what we would do what we still do at Flag Theory is, is set up the company and then pass it along to a banking partner who then oftentimes would repeat the same KYC process, which we had just done. And that really stuck with me. Um, so I was doing this, this uh, company formation business. I'd moved overseas. I was doing more international incorporation. And this pain of KYC kept growing bigger and bigger and bigger as our company grew because we'd have more clients. We'd have more cases. There'd be more documents sent back and forth over unencrypted email and just felt like this was a very inefficient and and quite frankly, dangerous process as far as identity theft goes. So in 2013, I authored a white paper on how we could potentially use blockchain to solve some of these problems in KYC and in digital identity. And, and this, was a, this was pretty early in the blockchain times. I mean, just for context, Ethereum hadn't been started yet. There hadn't even been a singular ICO ever. So it was, it was very early days in terms of blockchain compared to what it's like now in 2018. So I had that peer reviewed by about 50 people, that white paper, and then started out in earnest, just kind of building towards an MVP so that we could go to market, we could go to some of our banking partners and other intermediaries and get them using the software. So flash forward over a number of years, we went through four different accelerators with KYC chain, Accenture FinTech Lab, in Hong Kong, then Digital Ventures Accelerator in Thailand, Supercharger Accelerator in Hong Kong, and then Cyberport in Hong Kong as well. And continued to improve the product, got some major banking clients to help us build out the iteration of our product. So there's some really nice articles about our work with Standard Chartered Bank online, kind of talking about what we built for them and with them alongside their, their help and guidance. And we'd really gotten to the point in 2017 where we were established in the market, we had some existing customers, but there was one thing kind of missing, which was that although we'd created an efficiency gains for the financial institution, we hadn't returned a lot of value to the individual consumer. So you as an individual person would have to go through this KYC process multiple different times. You do have to go through this process multiple times over your lifetime. And there was always a, a part of our roadmap that we'd kind of mapped out called an identity wallet, but we decided consciously not to, not to go after it. And that was until kind of the token sale in 2017 became a very popular fundraising mechanism. And we kind of saw that as an opportunity to branch off this product, make it open source, go after that with full faith and enthusiasm and, and go to market with that. So that was in last year, in mid-year, KYC Chain founded the Self-Key Foundation and then sold some of the tokens there. It's a, it's a token economy. And we were able to get to market very recently with our identity wallet and with our, with our fintech marketplace. And I'm sure we can get into that, but that's sort of, well, the last 10 years of my life condensed down into hopefully <laughs> just a couple minutes. So, okay, so this is really interesting. So let's take a couple of steps back. So the KYC chain right now, you've done an ICO for it and it's up and running or you've just raised the funds to now bulk out the rest of the platform? Yeah, so, so KYC Chain is a B2B SaaS application that companies can use to process KYC. So we spun out this new entity, SelfKey, and that's an identity wallet that you can use to hold your crypto, say ERC-20 tokens, Ethereum, 
and you can use a hardware wallet like Ledger or Trezor. So all the all the the crypto is safe and in your control. There's no server. It's a serverless architecture. And self key is what we did the token sale for, and that is in the market now. So we have a working product that you can download today. If you go to selfkey.org forward slash identity wallet, you can download that product. It's free and open source, so anyone can go and grab that. And there's no cost. Because that's very interesting, because a lot of the ICOs that have come out, a lot of people don't seem to understand that there's often not a product. There's only an idea, <laughs> you know, which is like, yeah, it, it's it's kind of difficult when you, you're you throwing money at just an idea and you really don't know who the team is. Now, I've had Jeff Lambert on the show before, and he's really broken down what you need to look at for a new ICO. But I'm really happy to see with the self key that it is a working product, that this is something that's actually needed by the industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's way too many ICOs out there at the moment. You have to be very careful if, you, if you're, quote unquote, investing in ICOs, right? I, I think that there's a lot of people who are not maybe completely honest in that industry. There, there are, of course, many entrepreneurs who are honest and who are building things in earnest. But I think that the incentives are not necessarily aligned quite properly. And, and I'm, I'm sort of someone who, who errs on the side of, of laissez-faire. We should have less regulations. But with the ICO space, I do see kind of a need for regulations at this point. A lot of companies that maybe haven't deserved it have gone out and, and raised a tremendous amount of money. And I'm not sure if a lot of them are able to actually execute and capitalize on their on their roadmap. We'll, we'll see. I mean, time will tell, but I'm sure there will be winners and losers in the space. So we've kind of jumped into the deep end here. So for my listeners who don't <laughs> know what a KYC is or an AML, maybe you can break down these terms for us a little bit. Sure. So, so KYC refers to know your customer and AML refers to anti-money laundering. And, and both of these are, are regulations that are prescribed and set up by governments in order to prevent things like terrorist financing, money laundering of drug proceeds, stuff that, you know, is for better or worse illegal in most countries of the world. And if a financial institution or a bank is working with a client who's somehow violating you know, money laundering laws, or they're not performing proper KYC on that person, so they don't know who they are, then they could face huge regulatory penalties for kind of not meeting that compliance standard. So at a high level, that's kind of what we're talking about when we say KYC and AML is, is KYC is identification of the customer, making sure that this person is who they say they are. So explain to me a little bit about how this might affect just a normal citizen who is living abroad as an expat. Sure. So it probably, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have been affected by KYC laws, whether you, whether you know it consciously or not. But, but this is when you go to a new country, you need to open up a bank in that new country, and you walk into the bank, and you give them your passport and maybe some other sets of documents that the bank requires. So the reason why the bank is collecting those documents is that they're satisfying their internal compliance requirements as to what's necessary for a customer identification, customer onboarding as it's called. And so you're required to give these documents to prove that you're not a bad person in the eyes of the law and you're a suitable customer for this particular bank. Part of the problem is, is that it's become sort of an arms race where there's lots of people who are trying to defraud the system and, and do bad things. And so the innocent people are really caught up in this web of compliance and having to provide this huge long laundry list of documentation every time they go and set up a financial account. And it's just oftentimes a very painful, very annoying um, process to go and do that. And to make matters worse, we've even seen some significant data hacks over the past couple of years where information of identity owners has been compromised, even from very trusted sources, like, for instance, Equifax, right? This is one of the largest 
credit bureaus in the world located in the US, and they had hacks of over hundreds of millions of consumer documents and data was stolen from their servers and, and faced a catastrophic data leak. Um, to make matters worse, the executives may have engaged in some insider trading and actually shorted the stock before they made the announcement. So that was a particularly <laughs> nefarious case of, uh, of a data leak. But, but it goes to show, right? So this is a company which is selling your data to banks and other financial institutions, and then they don't even have the security precautions to set it up properly so that they can prevent a hack. And that data was hacked. And, and kind of my thesis, what I've been on kind of a world tour trying to articulate and speak about is that it's not necessarily, Equifax didn't do that maliciously or intentionally, right? The reason why that happened to Equifax is because Equifax is a centralized data store of all your information. So all of the American credit information is stored on Equifax's servers in a centralized database. And that's a very, very high priced target because now hacker knows that if they get into that database, they're going to have a wealth, a treasure trove of information at their disposal that they can go sell on the dark web and, and make money off of it, right? That's what criminals and hackers do when they're, they're trying to steal identity information is they steal it and then they use it to profit. The problem is, is that that's centralized in one place. If there is a distributed approach, a decentralized approach to identity management, the value of the target that's being attacked is significantly lower. So it's sort of an analogy that I use like this. The Equifax example is Equifax building a big castle and a big moat around the castle and a big fence around the moat and trying to keep people out. But unfortunately, there's a security vulnerability and somebody gets in because it's just worth so much to get into that castle. The difference with a decentralized identity approach is there's lots of small little treasure chests throughout the kingdom and breaking into one house at a random treasure chest that is hard and difficult to find is only worth a small amount. And the criminal would have to break into every house in the kingdom, which would be quite difficult to do. And the value of any one particular treasure chest is much lower. Therefore, the criminal goes after kind of those higher priced, more valuable targets instead of trying to target all the little guys. So that's kind of at a high level, the non-technical explanation of why should we use a blockchain? Why should we use a decentralized technology as opposed to a centralized technology to solve the identity management you know, problem, as it were? Well, one of the main reasons that I'm so familiar with this is because I buy real estate overseas. So every time I buy a house or we buy a new home for ourselves, I need to go through the entire process over and over again. So this is, you know, like we're talking some of the banking and the higher end things, but just as simple as purchasing a property, you know, or sending more than say 10 or $20,000 overseas to a different bank account, a lot of times you'll need to provide this information. So why don't you talk to me a little bit about the type of information that would go inside the digital identity? Yeah. So within our identity wallet, self-key identity wallet, so it's funny that you mentioned real estate because we actually have a marketplace for real estate, specifically real estate that you can buy and then become a naturalized citizen having made that investment. So in many different countries around the world, you can make an investment in real estate. You can actually be granted citizenship on the basis of that investment under the law in that specific country. And this process is somewhat confusing and opaque to a person that hasn't gone through this already. We've, we've processed a number of different cases, citizenship by investment through real estate purchase, through our service at Flag Theory. And so we understand this, this industry and what's needed. So you can actually explore some of the properties on our site. If you go to alpha.selfkey.org and then you click on the marketplace, you can click on real estate and you can see different properties that are available. And we try to make all of the fees very transparent. And then the process to go and submit your KYC to buy those is is very, very rigorous. I mean, there's a lot of documents. So you need something like your passport. You need to have ideally some kind of 
CV, medical transcripts in some cases, references, so a bank reference or potentially something like employment reference. So all of these documents you're able to store locally in your identity wallet and you're able to pass that along to the agent, processes the case, and you can kind of go back and forth through the secure channels. So instead of having these long email threads where there's uncorrelated data and everything is everywhere and then you forward it to somebody else and then their email is hacked and everything's lost. I mean, it's just a bad situation to be doing this over unencrypted email. So we're trying to provide an end-to-end encrypted, safe, secure mechanism to organize, send and receive KYC data to do things like purchase a property or open up an exchange account or open up a bank account. Different types of verticals will be attacking kind of one by one. So hopefully that, that kind of answers your question. No, absolutely, it does. As I'm listening to you speak, I, my, my mind is really racing with all the implications this really has. Because as time goes on, more and more of our lives is becoming on the internet. And I can just imagine if someone got their hands on one of these KYC packs with, like you said, your, you know, your reference, your CV, your banking details, your utility bills, your passport copy, your social insurance number. Like really, with all that information, they can completely replicate your identity. They can do anything they want. That's right. I mean, on one hand, there's the hackers, and on the other hand, there's there's these large internet companies who have essentially assimilated lots and lots of information about us. And, and I think you're absolutely correct. As our lives become increasingly more digital, who has ownership and access and control over our data becomes one of the most important topics of our time. And I think that that's why it's so important that there's this movement. And it, to be fair, it's not only our company. There's there's several companies who are moving towards what's called self-sovereign digital identity. And the way that I explain self-sovereign digital identity, how is it different? What does it mean? If you think about it with this analogy, it's kind of helpful. So if you have a cell phone number and you want to switch to a new provider, a new carrier, are you able to move and port that number to the new carrier? If you actually own and control that number, then you should be able to switch to the new carrier, keep your number and continue doing business with a different company. If you don't own that number and you instead have to get a new number and tell all your friends and family, hey, my number switched. I had to switch from this company to that company. Sorry, it's an inconvenience, but I didn't own that number. That's really the difference, right? And so instead of these companies providing us with something and then someday taking it away, perhaps, it's us walking up to the system with an identity and then they're plugging into that and then we can allow them access to it as long as we want to. So it's really a a position of enfranchisement and control, which lies at the heart of self-sovereign identity. Well, I think control is a very interesting topic because the more I learn, the more I read, the more distrust I have of big business, big education, big government. And the more I think that it's our responsibility to take real control over our own lives. And really, that sounds like what you're working on here, not just with flag theory, but with KYC chain and with the self-key. Yeah, really the big revolution in technology that's enabling this change is blockchain and what that affords, right? So if you look at something like, I won't name any specific cryptocurrency, but if you look at cryptocurrency in general, the big difference between a traditional money account at a financial institution and cryptocurrency is to me the issue of custody, right? So at a bank, I'm storing my money at a bank and the bank is keeping that on their balance sheet. And if the bank ever goes bankrupt, Essentially, I've lost that money. Perhaps I'm insured up to a certain amount, but you know, at least in the U.S., over $100,000 FDIC insurance won't cover you, and all your money will have been 
you know, essentially erased and gone if that bank goes out of business. When you're talking about blockchain and you're holding that money in your own wallet, you're the custodian. So you own and control and manage that money yourself. And it's not under the hands and the ownership of another company. And so we're applying that same principle to the identity space. We're using the same underlying technology blockchain, but it's a different use case. Instead of currency, Specifically, we're, we're looking at how can we disrupt the way that identity is managed and put the user in a place of custodianship and ownership of that identity. That makes perfect sense. So we've talked a lot about with the KYC, why it's so necessary in the marketplace. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the challenges are, what the, the hiccups or the problems going forward with developing a technology like this might be? Well, where to begin? I mean, I think that at the core, it's a question of user adoption. You know, are users willing to adopt and take this. And, and a lot of times, one of the big questions is, you know, how many people and how many companies do you need to be on the system to be successful, right? And the way that I think about that is that we don't necessarily need every bank in the world to adopt self-key technology to have been deemed, quote unquote, successful. What we need to do, and, and the reason why is that when you're an individual consumer, you're looking to sign up for a bank account, you're looking to sign up for a visa, you're looking to sign up for a company set up. You're not necessarily looking to set up 50 companies or 50 bank accounts. You're looking to do one. And you might even have two companies with the same bank account, uh, with the same account at the same bank, right? So you have two accounts at, say, Standard Charter Bank, right? So what we're trying to do in our marketplace is fill it in the vertical with enough products and services so that an individual person can go in there and feel satisfied with the service that they're being provided and not necessarily have to go to every single bank in the world and capture 95% market share. We only really need one bank, and we already have that, who's comfortable and happy with money that comes from, um, you know, originated with cryptocurrency sources. And, and with that, you're able to have that crypto to fiat bridge, as it's called, um, between the two asset classes that, that enables the individual to kind of do what they need to do within the banking context. So, so that's kind of one key challenge is user adoption, but I think we can, we can approach that in kind of a method where we are able to look at what is important to the identity owners who are our users and then providing the products and services that they need right now. And as the growth curve, the adoption curve matures, we can be providing, you know, different and, and more broad array of financial services and products. So being very, very specific about their key partners that you decide to work with, especially at the beginning. Yes. Yes. So the first, it, it depends on who our users are and which stage of the, of the company lifecycle, right? So at this point, we've identified that a lot of the early adopters of the self-key system are crypto savvy individuals who hold a certain amount of cryptocurrency and want to be able to change into and out of cryptocurrency and get that into and out of fiat, right? So who are we working with? Well, we're working with exchanges who are either crypto to crypto exchanges or fiat to crypto exchanges. We're working with banks who are comfortable taking clients who have exchanged some money in cryptocurrency, which is actually not that easy to find, but we do have a couple partners there as well and over-the-counter trading desks as well. So something that a lot of people don't know is that the big volume that happens is, is not necessarily through exchanges. It's oftentimes through what's called an over-the-counter trading desk. So we have some partners there as well. And we'll continue to kind of expand and, and, and go out. And one other vertical that we're really focused on, setting up a company. We found that digital nomads is kind of a key market segment for us. And if you're an entrepreneur who's setting up a company abroad, you're just constantly needing to have a new legal entity. And so if we can make that process easier and better 
and more streamlined, then we hope that we can you know, earn that repeat business and we can gain the customer loyalty and kind of user adoption that we're looking for. So is that kind of the revenue model that you're helping? Because it sounds like you've put like really a lot of work into this. You've been working on it for five years. How is it that you are being rewarded for all this work? Right. So good question. I mean, there are different entities. So depending on the entity, uh, there's a different um, business model. Self-Key in particular is, uh, is a tokenized ecosystem. So it has a native token, the key token, which has a utility function within the Self-Key network. So you have to own and control and stake a certain amount of key tokens in order to sign up for these products and services. So let's say that you want to set up a company, you want to use the Self-Key wallet to do that because it's better, safer, and quicker for you to do so. You would be required to hold a certain amount of these key tokens in your wallet, and then you would be able to gain access to setting up a company. So that's sort of how the, the model works within the specifically the self-key ecosystem. So I would assume then there's a finite amount of the tokens out there for this economy? That's correct, yes. Very interesting. Just going to take a quick break. Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish, and it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas, or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level, to legally reduce your tax bill, to live a more international life, and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book. So Edmund, I think that the self-key and the KYC chain are really interesting, but I also want to talk to you a little bit about flag theory. Maybe you can break down some of these ideas. Is this still a project that you work on? Is this something that you're still passionate about? Talk to me about the flag theory and flagtheory.com. Sure. I mean, I founded the, the, the company, so it is something that I'm definitely still passionate about. In terms of day-to-day -day involvement, I'm, I'm really have taken a big step back there. There's some amazing people that work there and, and they're doing, quite frankly, I think a better job at managing it than, than I ever was. Flag theory is, is not necessarily a new concept. In fact, it was started well over five decades ago and it's kind of gone through a series of evolutions. So, so flag theory is kind of the concept that you can strategically structure your life where you plant flags in specific jurisdictions in order for certain elements of your financial and personal life. So the first flag is a passport. And we, we talk about, you know, what does citizenship mean and where can you become a citizen of a new country and, and methods and, you know, processes to do so. The second flag is residency. So where you're a resident and a tax resident is, is very, very important. Unless you're American or Eritrean, generally speaking, you're a tax resident somewhere and, and you owe taxes in that country where you are a tax resident. And I think one common mistake that people make is they think, okay, well, I can just go be an expat and live abroad and I won't have to pay taxes in my home country. And, and that's not necessarily true unless you've established a new tax residency or you've specifically examined the tax treaty of the country where, you're, where you've come from and, and perhaps the one that you've gone to, then you could be on the, on the hook for some nasty penalties perhaps even if you don't get that right. So, so seeking qualified advice and counsel on, on those tax issues is really important. So beyond kind of getting a, a, a passport flag and a residency flag well-established, the third 
is setting up a company and the fourth is setting up a bank account. So being able to do that is you know, a clear necessity as an entrepreneur, you need to have a company, you need to have a bank account, you need to accept money in from suppliers, pay money out to employees, contractors, et cetera. The next flag is oftentimes referred to as playgrounds flag or you know, some kind of physical assets flag. So where, where do you spend some of your time? Where do you keep your, your physical assets? And beyond that, we also have uh, added two more flags. So one is digital security. So this was added in the 1990s. And then we've added um, digital assets. So because this new asset class has emerged in cryptocurrencies and blockchain, we felt the need to add this new asset class in there. So, so there's actually seven flags, and, and that's kind of how we describe them. So seven flags, that's really interesting. Can you explain to me why you think that this might be valuable for expats or how this really ties in to the expats who are already living overseas? Right. Well, if the expats that are living overseas don't have a strategy, then I think that that's a mistake, right? So if, if you've left your home country and you haven't properly set things up so that you're no longer a tax resident there, and which often requires becoming a new tax resident somewhere else, again, you could be on the hook for penalties and back taxes and all kinds of nasty things that, quite frankly, you're not even getting anything back for. If you're living in a country and you're residing there, you absolutely should be paying taxes there according to the laws and the regulations that are there. But if you're not living in the country anymore and there is a legal way to relinquish yourself of those obligations, then it's full within your rights and legal capacity to do so. So I think it's just really important for expats to have a plan about how they're handling their personal financial situation and this isn't something where you want to kind of delay it or sweep it under the rug or not worry about it and say, yeah, I'll probably be fine. Nobody ever noticed. Like it's much, much, much better to have a documented, well thought out strategy for how you're going to handle this part of your life. And, and basically, flag theory is kind of a well-proven strategy and mechanism for doing it that's, that's well-proven, is, is over 50 years old. And, and any tax accountant or lawyer will, will agree that this is kind of how you need to go about thinking about how to handle these issues. Well, I think that's really interesting because a lot of people, and, and now I'm speaking specifically to Americans, they seem to think like that no one's really going to notice them, that the government won't know what they have in foreign bank accounts. And, you know, that's really not the case in today's day and age. Isn't that right? Right. Well, Americans are a little bit different for a number of reasons. Their tax is based off of citizenship as opposed to residency. So only... Americans and Eritreans have a tax basis based on, on citizenship. But getting back to your point, which is, yes, information is being shared between your bank and your home government on a regular basis at this point, 2018. So with Americans, it's a FACTA disclosure, the Foreign Account and Tax Compliance Act, which was passed several years ago, mandates that foreign banks or FFIs, foreign financial institutions, share information with the U.S. government about the information of the finances of Americans in, in the accounts that are abroad. So, so definitely if you're American, that's being shared. And if you're a foreign um, national, you're not American, then the information is likely being disclosed under something called CRS or AEOI, the Common Reporting Standard or the Automatic Exchange of Information. This has more recently been passed by essentially every major government in the world. Almost every nation you can think of, with a few exceptions, has uh, signed up for AEOI. And what that means is that the information is being disclosed about your bank accounts, uh, financial holdings to, to, to the country where you're tax resident. So both of those are, are vast land sweeping changes in terms of how information is disclosed. So 20, 30 years ago, could you maybe have gotten away with it? Probably. 
possibly, who knows. But now in 2018, uh, it's a different, more transparent financial world. And yeah, pretending or, or thinking that you're going to be safe by kind of flying under the radar is a very, very bad approach and one that I would absolutely caution against. And yeah, quite frankly, if you are, you, you need to, in my opinion, seek some legal advice as, as soon as possible to try to take care of that area of your life. It's, it's not necessarily fun, um, but it's something that really is, is better off being taken care of sooner rather than later. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. What we're trying to do here with offshore incorporation and all these types of strategies is to make sure we are legal in everything that we do. You know, this is not about hiding money or hiding assets away from the government. You really do need to become tax compliant. So for any of my listeners out there who think that they can just kind of close one eye and things will go away, you know, I'd, I'd really urge you or encourage you to speak to a tax lawyer or a CPA or a tax accountant who's going to be able to help you with these types of things. And I've had some of the guys on the show before. So if you look back through my episode list with David McKeegan, he'll be able to help you. Oh, I know him. Great guy. Oh, David McKeegan's amazing. He's been on the show. He's a good friend of mine. Yeah, great guy. I went to his uh, Bali villa a few years back and we had a nice beer together. I'm looking forward to visit him. He invited me as well. Shout out to greenbacktaxes.com. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> And so I want to talk to you because you, you mentioned something about the worldwide taxation. And I'll, I understand this very well. Do you think that this will be something that additional countries will follow, the taxation based on citizenship opposed to residency? I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a gut call. But personally, I don't think that a citizenship-based taxation makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you think about it, if you're not using any of the services in the country that you're paying taxes to and it's kind of like what are these what are these taxes really for like in a society you certainly have certain people who are privileged or lucky or hardworking enough to earn more money and then they they face a certain amount of tax and then you have certain people who are disadvantaged in the society right they may have mental incapacity or physical incapacity and they can't work and there's some kind of social safety net for them i mean in most developed society this is generally how it works i'm speaking in broad strokes um, but that's generally how things work. Um, when you're paying taxes to a country which you don't reside in, you're not necessarily getting any of the benefits in terms of the hospitals or the schools or the education or anything because you're not a resident there. You're a resident in a different country. So it doesn't really make sense in my mind that you would pay taxes to a government where you're not receiving any services from. So I do think it would be relatively unpopular and, and there haven't been any countries to my knowledge, that have implemented uh, a citizenship-based taxation in recent history. The, the U.S. has been one, and then Eritrea, which is a country with numerous human rights violations in Africa that's not a very well-developed economy, which is right now the only other country that taxes based on citizenship. So I, I, I don't know if that's a trend that will, um, that will change, but who knows? I mean, time will tell. Who knows? It's just interesting because when I look at, like, because I'm, I'm Canadian, you know, and I lived in Australia, and I find Australian Canadians, we do follow a lot of what the Americans do. And I really hope that that's not one of the ones that we follow in the footsteps. But I guess that really brings me to my next point. So for the second passport, like I've been an expat for 20 years, and I've lived in the Middle East for seven now, if I had maybe been a little bit more strategic in the last seven years, I could have obtained citizenship. But because of the UAE, they don't give citizenship. It doesn't matter if you live here for 50 years, 100 years, you'll never become a citizen. Can you talk to me a little bit about the countries that on the opposite side can grant you citizenship and how you might be able to do that? 
Sure. Um, so there's really a few different categories of countries which will grant you citizenship. So one of them, as you rightly just described, is citizenship through residency. So if you're a resident in Spain for five years, you can be qualified from a time-based component to become a citizen there. There's other countries like that as well. Uruguay is one that has a relatively short timeline. Panama, if you live there for five years, you can become a Panamanian citizen. Paraguay has a three-year citizenship timeline. Ecuador, Peru, many different countries around the world, quite frankly, almost all of them. The Emirates and becoming Emirati as an exception, quite notable exception, notwithstanding, many countries have citizenship through residency process that you can go through. And if you're living there for seven years, that's more than enough time in most countries, although you can check the laws and see individual circumstances, what your process might take in terms of time. A second category that we also touched on on this interview is citizenship by investment. So there are certain countries that will grant you a citizenship by investment. These countries will grant you a passport through a citizenship by investment process if you go through it successfully. So first, there'll be a background check and some due diligence that you'll have to prepare. You'll have to pay a, a small fee to an agent who will take care of it. Oftentimes, there's both a local agent and an international marketing agent. You're required to, to pay both. And then there's a due diligence firm, which you're required to pay as well. And kind of, they will prepare your case perform due diligence, and if you're deemed to be an acceptable character to make the investment in the country, then you're able to make either a donation to the government or an investment in some kind of qualified investment asset class, right? And that, that varies as well, depending on the country. So certain Caribbean nations have, you know, for instance, St. Kitts and Nevis is sort of the most notable one. If you make a contribution to the Sugar Diversification Fund, I believe it's called, then you can be granted a citizenship there. You can buy some property in Grenada, and you can become a Grenadian naturalized person. So that's that's sort of a second category of citizenship that's oftentimes referred to as a more direct path. These are, these are three to six month processes as opposed to five to seven years through a citizenship through residency. And then there's kind of a third one, isn't there? There's kind of some of the random ones. Like I've seen if you're <laughs> Jewish, then you can become an Israeli. I saw that for Brazilians, if you are, now let me see if I get this right. If you are the legal guardian of a Brazilian citizen, then there is a possibility to also get citizenship there. That's correct. That's correct. And let's not forget if you have a Brazilian child in Brazil, no matter what your nationality, they have a just soleil type citizenship regime. So that means that that child born on Brazilian soil becomes a de facto Brazilian citizen. Canada and the U.S. are the same. There, there's kind of the term that's come about in recent years called anchor baby, um, where um, certain individuals would go to these countries and then have a baby, and that, that baby would be a citizen of that country by nature of just soleil. There's also just sanguine, which is a Latin term for by blood, which means that if you have you know heritage in a specific country, you can become a naturalized citizen there as well. So for instance, Italy, Ireland, Poland, if you have ancestors in these countries, many of them European countries, you can qualify for a citizenship by proving your ancestral lineage, you know, down to yourself and, and then going through the proper channels to apply. Yeah, my family's originally from Denmark, but my grandparents are born in Canada. So I think for that one, I'm kind of uh, shit out of luck. Sorry, we can phone <laughs> the Danish government and, and suggest otherwise, but I don't know if we'd get far. Yeah, probably not. But no, I think these are really interesting topics. I really see the benefit of having a second passport because we really don't know what's happening in today's day and age. And, and you know, you hear about these types of insurance policies. And I really do believe that a second passport can be 
really can be an insurance policy. Now, whether that in po uh, insurance policy is worth that 100000 to somewhere around the million-dollar mark if you were doing, say, an economic passport in Europe, you know, that's, that's a case-by-case -case basis. But, you know, if you're already living as an expat, then being strategic and planning it out so that where you're working, it will eventually lead to citizenship, I think there's huge advantages to that. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think for the economic citizenship, I mean, that makes sense for people of a certain net worth, right? They, they say that the only market that isn't fit for the citizenship by investment market is, is billionaire category because those people have already gotten that, that straightened out. So it'll become apparent, I think, if that's the right choice for you. And if you're not at that you know, high net worth individual status, then there are, as you described, many different options for becoming a resident, living there for a few years. And, and one of the really cool things about being an expat is that it's, uh, it is difficult at times, but I, I find that expats are, are sort of cut from a certain cloth where they're willing to go on, a, on an adventure. They're willing to kind of you know write their own story in this lifetime. And what cooler way to spend your time than in a place that you really enjoy where at the end of it, you actually get you know, a really useful travel document. I mean, to me, that, that sort of is just kind of a really nice narrative that, that you know, you're fully able to build for yourself. And uh, we actually built an app to try to help with this called passports.io. So just passportsplural.io, where you can actually sort and look, here's how much money I have, here's how long I'd like to stay in the country. And then we try to sort it out by category and, and give you different options for where you can become a citizen. And we have the same one, residencies.io, just residenciesplural.io. Um, and these are both free. There's no cost. And you can use them. All the information is there and very transparent. You don't even have to sign up. You can go there and, and look for free without even giving us your email. I haven't used the residency one. I didn't even realize about that one. I think I'll have to check it out myself. But I've definitely been on your passports one a few times. It's a brilliant little app. So talk to me a little <laughs> bit about, you know, you mentioned like the visa-free travel and using this as a travel document. What are some of the countries that have really strong passports these days? Because I, when I use that app, I saw that things are kind of changing from say 10 or 20 years ago, which we would traditionally think of like the Danish passport, like I just mentioned, my heritage. Sure. I mean, the value of the passport is something that a lot of different companies have all different types of like metrics and thoughts about what becomes valuable. I mean, to me, I might be able to go to, I don't know, East African countries on this specific passport, but I don't go to East Africa all that often. So it's not valuable to me, right? So, so where you're able to travel is really only as important as where you'd like to travel. So I think that one of the key things that you can look at it on our app is, is select the region for visa-free travel. Do you like to travel to Oceania? Do you like to travel to East Asia? Do you like to travel to the UK or America or Canada? And then based off of that, you can see which passports can get you access to that country. So, so for instance, the Caribbean countries have very different visa-free travel options. So with the Grenadian passport, you can travel visa-free to China which is interesting, you know, for, for certain people. You can travel on an E2, which is a, a E2 visa is an investor treaty visa to the U.S. And then there's others like, you know, for instance, St. Kitts and Nevis, you can, you can travel to the U.K. and EU, if I'm not mistaken. So just depending on where you'd want to travel, I think is a very important consideration if you're sort of actively searching for a second passport. So it's not so much just about how many countries in the world that you can travel to visa-free, but really being a bit more strategic and picking out the ones that you need to visit or are going to be helping you with your business, I suppose. I think so. I mean, if, you, if you're not ever going to set foot in like a random country, Uzbekistan, then why are you, you know, 
what, that that number on the list doesn't really matter. No offense, Uzbekistan. I'm sure it's a it's a wonderful place. I haven't been there personally. Would actually like to go, but I wouldn't necessarily select a travel document that's specifically visa free to Uzbekistan. Right. So it just depends on the personal preference, I think. Because I remember when I started first getting into passports probably 15, 20 years ago when I started traveling overseas and everything was like Scandinavian and Switzerland and Austria. These were the really, really strong ones. But when I go through your app today, a lot of the strong ones are like Japan and South Korea and Singapore. Singapore is just an incredibly powerful travel document. So it's interesting the shift from more of the, the Western centralized Europe country to a bit more of the Asia. Yes, Singapore, however, has a big caveat in that they don't recognize dual citizenship. So if you're going to become a Singaporean, which there actually are several paths to take to become a Singaporean naturalized citizen. However, you'd need to relinquish any other passport that you hold at that point. I have seen that with a few of the other ones. I think Japan is in the same boat, that if you become a Japanese citizen, you actually have to renounce. And I think it's actually quite difficult to become Japanese too. It's, it's quite difficult to become Japanese. Even to become a permanent resident in Japan is, is quite difficult. If you look at the requirements, I, I have a friend who lives in Japan and he runs a website, tokyochipo.com. He knows everything about Japan. And he, he jokes that in order to become a Japanese permanent resident as a foreigner, you have to be under 30 years old because age is actually a big consideration. You have to have graduated from um, at least two major U.S. universities. You had to have created several patents. You have to be paid like at least 10 grand a month. And you have to speak fluent Japanese. And, and then you would perhaps maybe qualify for permanent residency. So I'm, I'm, he's speaking a bit tongue in cheek so to speak, facetiously. But yeah, it certainly is no walk in the park to become a permanent resident in, in Japan, especially when compared to some other places like, say, for instance, Portugal, where basically it's an application process and you can become you know, a permanent resident in that country. And, and several others are, are quite similar as well. Yeah, well, I had Tyron Giuliani on the show early in our history. I want to say episode three. He runs a nine-figure business, and he's been there in Japan for 19 years. And I don't believe he has citizenship. So that, that should kind of put things in perspective for you. Yeah, it's, it's not an easy immigration policy. But that being said, fantastic country to live and work in. I really enjoy going to Japan. So that's kind of on the one spectrum. Like we're, we're just chit-chatting about Japan, but what are some of the other easy ones? So you mentioned Portugal. What about the South American countries? Like you were talking about three years for Uruguay or for Paraguay. How does that work? Yeah, so Paraguay, you have to put $25,000 in a bank account and then you can become a permanent resident. However, I got to be honest with you, from what I've heard, boots on the ground from, from some close associates of mine is that it's not as easy as some people might write in forums on the internet. There was even a few cases where people went to jail in Paraguay because they were trying to bribe public officials and they got caught. So certainly you'd never want to do that during a, a passport process. Even if you're successful in bribing that public official, there's all types of downstream consequences that could happen if, for instance, there's a change of politicians that are in office. You could find yourself where you're not in, you know, you're not, you're not acquiring citizenship on the basis of an established law or regulation. You really have nothing to stand on, and that could actually be stripped from you, and, and you could lose that. So I'd really highly recommend not going through any citizenship process which isn't fully approved and kind of going through the, the necessary steps there. If it, if it seems to be too good to be true, it most likely is. Is that kind of that gray passport that I've heard of where it is an official passport, but it's maybe not obtained through legal means? It's like the cousin of a cousin of somebody, and you slip them some money, and somehow it gets made? Yeah, Mark Nesman actually has a, has a really nice article on this. He wrote 
Bitcoin many years ago, but it's, it's forget the exact title, but it's something like white, gray, and black market passport. So a black market passport is I go on the dark web, I pay somebody five grand, and I get a passport. And, and that thing is basically not worth the paper that it's written on. Like you're not in any <laughs> database. It's completely fake. It's illegal to use if there's any, even one letter oh that's, that's wrong in that. It's completely illegal. And yeah, you just don't really want to be doing that. A gray market passport is, as you described, it's, it's technically a real travel document, but you've acquired it through a means which is not 100% by the book. And if that's the case, then again, you could face some huge issues down the road, given that you don't have the legal you know, footing to stand upon. And then there's the white, quote unquote, market passports, where you've legally acquired a new travel document through legitimate means, and you fit all of the requirements necessary to do so and have gone through the appropriate steps. So that's really the only pass that we talk about. And I think that's it's somewhat of the, people get a sketchy vibe when you start saying, you know, oh, we're selling passports. Like, what's, what's going on here? What do you mean? Is that illegal? No, it's, it's actually a thriving industry quite quickly growing and, and, and a lot of people engage in it and partake in it and invest and get a new citizenship. I mean, it's quite valuable when you think about your daily life. I mean, from your identity, you're connecting bank accounts, you're connecting travel documents, you're connecting, you know, visas and plane tickets and all these other elements of your of your daily life, especially as an, as an expat, it's just intrinsically linked um, to, to your day-to-day activities. So it's really important. Um, and you certainly would never want to be doing that with, uh, with a gray or a black market passport. It just wouldn't be a prudent decision. So yeah, anyway, there's there's a bit more on, on that topic. Well, I think that really brings us full circle in it. It really explains why we need something like self-key, why we need something like this KYC chain, because all of these things, they need to be done in a secure manner, and they need to be done legally and completely above board. So it really is important if these type of topics interest you, that you go to a reputable source, you go to somebody that you can trust, you go to someone who's going to know the inner workings of how this is going to be done. You're not going to have your data stolen, and you're not going to be ending up with one of these black or gray passwords that sound very scary to me but but yeah it's all about trust i think at the end of the day so edmund thank you so much for your time super 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 interesting conversation wealth of knowledge here and i'm really interested to see what ends up happening with self-key and how this is going to change the marketplace if my listeners want to find out more about what we've been talking about today where can we send them sure i mean you can check out flagtheory.com or selfkey.org and yeah head over to any of the social media links from there as well i really appreciate all of you listening and hope to interact with you at some point in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time, Edmund. We'll talk soon, okay? Yeah, thanks very much. All the best. Okay, I want to read you the reviews from the back of the book that some massively famous people in the international living space have wrote for me. See if you recognize some of these names, okay? So Gregor Gregerson says... In Expat Secrets, Mikkel elegantly describes the many benefits that accrue to those that choose their country of residence and provides practical and timely tips and examples for doing so. This book is a game changer. Leif Simon says, Having lived and worked overseas for more than a quarter century myself, I've seen expats make every mistake under the sun. Save yourself time and energy and learn from someone who has actually done it. Expat Secrets is the book to get you started in your international journey. Edmund John says, Having incorporated hundreds of companies from my clients over the last seven years, this book is very helpful for those that are starting out. And Michael Cobb says, A huge thanks to Mikkel for clearly written, concise description of the international experience as lived by a true globetrotting pioneer. Especially refreshing is the chapter on the benefits of raising kids overseas. 
As the father of two third culture kids, I can personally assure you that no education expands the mind more than growing up overseas. And my good friend David McKeegan wrote the foreword to this book. But I will let you read that yourself when you go to Amazon today and you purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Thanks, guys. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com.